I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. Here in the Middle East, the economies are booming, but the outlook for what some call the post-Ukraine dying U.S. empire's vassal states in Europe, things may not be so rosy. While 40 million will go hungry tonight in the USA, the media may be talking about something called the debt ceiling. They probably shouldn't be, says one economist who advises Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, amongst others, amidst his fight to end the climate emergency. Professor Robert Hockett, Cornell, Edward Cornell, Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University and Senior Counsel at Westwood Capital Investment Bank, joins me now from New York City. Thank you so much, Professor Hockett, for uh, coming on. Uh, yeah, the world's financial markets. They've been concerned about the FOMC monetary policy interest rates uh, that arguably will affect uh, the financial indices all around the world. But I mean, here, maybe in the global south, is de-dollarization, the environment, um, the issues of uh, the impact of Ukraine as BRICS Bank and Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, movement occurs. What do you think the impact of Ukraine will be on EU-US economies? Thanks, Ashton. Great to be with you. Um, I think, I mean, there are a number of distinct, I think, uh, effects that are worth tracing. Uh, one is, as you suggested, there is a, a good deal more talk now about de-dollarization uh, than there used to be. I think largely owing to the fact that a number of the BRIC nations and other uh, nations as well are trying to kind of get out from under um, the U.S. dollar as the sort of principal transnational currency. Um, and, of course, the reason for that in turn is that the, the, the role of the dollar in the global economy uh, enables the U.S. to exert a good deal of leverage through uh, sanctioning activity of a kind, of course, that's been uh, fairly uh, active. Uh, over the last uh, year. There is, however, um, one possible sort of hitch to that uh, that might stand in the way. And I think what it's going to do is force the BRICS, in particular China, uh, to essentially make some sort of so-called hard choices, as they say here in the U.S. So um, the thing about the dollar's global role is that it has actually been, in a certain sense, helpful to China and other economies whose growth model has been an export-led growth model. The reason being that the dollar is, of course, overvalued in virtue of its role uh, in the global economy. And that, of course, makes American uh, exports more expensive than they would otherwise be, and it makes other nations' uh, exports um, less expensive to Americans, at least, than the, they would otherwise be. And that's, of course, why the U.S. has been uh, incurring uh, current account deficits of, of large magnitudes over the, the past decades. However, we also know, right, from the, um, the words of President Xi himself and from other BRICS leaders, uh, that they are engaged in efforts to sort of move off of export-led growth strategies and to move more toward domestic demand-generated growth strategies. And insofar as they succeed in doing that, um, the idea of decoupling from the dollar or at least uh, lessening their dollar dependence will become much more uh, realistic to, to, to put into practice. Yeah, some people estimate that China won't even be able to satisfy domestic demand. And as regards planning, actually, since you write so much about planning and your desire for planning, actually, in the United States, uh, how can companies in Southeast Asia and uh, uh, the Global South plan, given this sanction regime that you allude to, changing every other day? I mean, they say Japanese uh, uh, electronics firms don't know how to plan uh, to make things, given that they don't know when the next Chinese chip is going to be sanctioned. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think the key for China and for nations that would like to be engaged in a, a kind of a long-term and indeed planable or predictable trading relation with China uh, is concerned. Um, the real key is to sort of heighten uh, domestic uh, autonomy, you might say, or something approaching autarky, right, or self-sufficiency when it comes to the capacity either to produce most or all of what you need right there at home, or to be engaged in tight trade relations with other nations that can supply whatever needs you're not able to satisfy domestically or through domestic production or domestic supply. So if you had a trading block form, say between China, Russia, uh, maybe some other uh, BRICS members, maybe all the other BRICS members, and maybe a few other nations, um, it's highly likely uh, that you would actually have the makings of a kind of autarky within that particular trading bloc. As we know, uh, Russia has vast natural resources as well as a great deal uh, of technical know-how. Uh, we also know, of course, that uh, Africa is very resource-rich and China in particular, but also Russia, um, have been expanding their trade relations and their economic relations with Africa. And you know, between Africa, Russia, and China, it would seem to me that you've got the same sort of diversity uh, of resource availability, indeed, maybe even a greater degree of diversity of resource availability and productive capacity than you have, say, in North America or in Europe uh, as a whole. So if a block of some sort were to form among those countries, there would be simply no need for them to rely on the dollar or to be dollar dependent. And thus, there would be you know, no real uh, danger posed to them uh, by dollar-related sanctions. But everything, of course, rides on whether they can actually do that. They've got, uh, of course, the resource capacity to do all of that. Um, and they've got the productive uh, capacity, that's to say the technical know-how, uh, to do all of that. The real key is going to be whether they have the sort of political capacity to do it. I do. I mean, you advise Rokana, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, the progressive Gorgas. What, what on earth do they say when you say things like you've just said to me? Because they all voted for more military aid to Ukraine. Uh, AOC voted $40 billion in military aid. Uh, I mean, they've, they've turned around the $1.3 spending bill from 2018 that specifically said the Azov regiment with their Nazi ties could be, were the ones being sanctioned, in effect. Um, what do they say to you? When you say, look, some of these policies may unite uh, and uh, make the U.S. Uh, a declining power. Um, I, basically, the context in which subjects of that kind come up when I'm talking with these uh, these legislators is a little bit different than the current context that you and I are, are, are talking about these things in connection with. Um, so in general, when I'm talking to American policymakers uh, and progressive legislators, I'm talking more about the need uh, for a kind of re-diversification of and a re, uh, let's say, autonomy or autarky um, restoring um, a set of policies for the American economy, right? I mean, the U.S. itself used to have a very diversified economy, and it used to be able to produce most of what it needed for itself. Uh, and in fact, it was the outsourcing that was kind of carried on by, you know, capital here in the U.S., um, sort of essentially seeking lower wage labor abroad, uh, that brought about the sort of hollowing out of the American economy. So when I talk to uh, legislators here, I say, you know, actually a certain degree or a greater degree of autonomy uh, on the part of non-American economies and closer relations among non-American economies that would accompany um, uh, a sort of re-autonomization of the American economy would actually be good for everybody. It would be good for the world itself, right? There's been a great deal of 
of dysfunction in the relations between the U.S. and other economies worldwide. Um, and part of, I think, restoring health is restoring a certain degree of self-sufficiency uh, to all of the economies or, you know, reasonably sized trading blocks worldwide. Uh, and in that context, I think they're quite receptive uh, to what I'm suggesting. Uh, we haven't, I haven't talked with any of these legislators about the current war itself or about U.S. sanctions or anything like that. But that, I think all of their votes in that connection um, have to be sort of understood in relation to the politics of Washington. And that's just not something that I'm very much engaged in. But there's something connected there because, of course, that money is being recycled through these big multinational weapons companies. And you want money to go into uh, infrastructure and uh, you want to create that autarky that you, you speak of. Um, I mean, I don't know where to start or whether to be ironic about Joe Biden talking about rail links on the East Coast of the United States when I'm talking to you from Dubai and the whole of the Middle East is engaged in massive solar projects. China to the east of this studio is, is uh, I mean, you can't underestimate the amount that they're working on or whether President Lula's uh, stopping of all the uh, deforestation in the Amazon. What, happy with Joe Biden's... Uh, little uh, railway link he's talking about on the East Coast? Well, it's, it, I, I'm somewhat happy with it. Of course, um, I'm happier about it because it's part of a much larger package of initiatives that he'll be uh, pursuing. It might be worth noting in this connection um, that part of, while I'm not really engaged in the politics of Washington, one thing I am aware of is that there is a kind of growing readiness on the part of some Republicans uh, to sort of join forces with certain Democrats on various infrastructure bills, various productive renewal type bills. In fact, a, a major piece of legislation that I crafted for uh, Ro Khanna on the one hand and Marco Rubio, who's a Republican in the Senate, on the other hand, um, is devoted specifically to that. And we're getting Republican support for that. But here's where the war comes into this, um, or maybe not the war, but at least defense spending. Um, one way to get Republicans on board uh, with restoration of America's productive capacity, both in an infrastructural sense and in an industrial sense, is by pointing out to them uh, that a country that loses its industrial capacity and its productive capacity becomes much weaker, right, than an economy that has a robust productive capacity. And so there's um, the, the, the sort of appeal that you have to make to these Republicans is sort of adjacent to a national security or defense-related appeal. The tightrope that that presents to us progressives, of course, is, you know, you don't want in any way to be encouraging militarism or imperialism or adventurism of a kind that the U.S. has engaged in a lot in recent decades to its own detriment. Um, but at the same time, you want to keep Republicans interested in productive capacity. And the only way, at least initially, to get their attention on that is to sort of point out the national security significance of in it. In, fairness, in fairness, Professor, it's the Republicans. A few Republicans voted against these tens of billions, what, $66 billion approved by Congress last year? I don't know how many billions of uh, public money. It was Republicans, anti-war in Ukraine Republicans, not only the progressive caucus. Only, only a few, Russian, only a few. The, the, the great majority, the great bulk of Republicans are still very much, very pro-war, very pro-defense, very pro-national security, even jingoistic. Um, there's just the, the, the smaller uh, sort of marginal group um, of Republicans who have been voting against the war and against defense expenditures. Well, I mean, Ro Khanna, didn't Ro Khanna say, you know what we should do? We should take the stuff we're uh, selling the Saudis 
And uh, obviously Saudi Arabia and the UAE are refusing Biden's calls to uh, increase oil production, uh, which is what uh, Washington, the White House, wanted. And uh, Ro Khanna yeah. seems to be going ahead with the, uh, yeah, let's punish these countries for not lowering uh, prices and increasing production. And this is all in the context of the Perez reforms of the Democrats to be able to get lobbying from fossil fuel companies. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, think that, I don't think that Congress, Congressman Khanna can be lumped together with those folk who want to penalize Saudi Arabia. Um, I what, mean, send the arms is, from there to Ukraine, to Zelensky, which is what Ro Khanna oh, was suggesting. Right. Yeah, I think, well, there's a longstanding, of course, concern on the part of many Democrats uh, with the sort of ongoing support that we've been giving to uh, the current Saudi regime. And there's kind of growing concern among some of the more progressive Democrats about the sort of support that's being lent to um, the more right-wing elements of the Israeli government as well. Um, and of course, as we know, right, the more right-wing elements of the uh, Israeli government are uh, putting out feelers too and, and, and looking to sort of establish some kind of alliance with uh, Saudi Arabia itself. So they don't see, they don't see the, the relevance of the Green New Deal. I mean, for, just forgetting the fossil fuel emissions of the U.S. military, which are unfathomable in terms of how much all these aircraft carriers and missile productions do, what they do to the environment. They don't see that uh, exportation of LNG gas from fracking, Joe Biden's obsession with fracking, his detractors call it, sending it to Europe and the cost of that to the environment. None of the progressive caucus understand that. I don't think that's true, Ashton. I think they do see the relevance, but I think what they're doing is they're thinking in terms of sequencing, right? They're all pushing, they're all all in for a complete transition to renewables, but they also recognize that that's going to take about five to seven years um, at the least, and maybe up to a decade. And so they're trying to keep energy prices down during that transition, precisely because when energy prices go up, that gives aid and comfort to Republicans who are trying to, um, you know, sort of quash the move toward a green economy and trying to expand uh, fracking and other things of that sort here in the U.S. I don't, by the way, see any obsession on Joe Biden's part with fracking. I do see an obsession on the part of Joe Manchin, who Joe Biden has to kind of keep, you know, happy um, in order to keep him on board with various pieces of legislation. But um, I, I think that Biden himself at this point is all in with the green transition. There's simply a recognition that it takes a while um, and that the best way to, you know, kind of keep that transition underway is to take away the strength that some Republicans have when energy prices go up. Professor Robert Hawkins, I'll stop you there. More from the advisor to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elizabeth Warren after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the Edward Cornell, Professor of Law and Advisor to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elizabeth Warren, Professor Robert Hockett. As an advisor to these progressive so-called icons of the, uh, I don't know, MSNBC, <laughs> not CNN so much, uh, like Elizabeth Warren and Ro Connor and so on, uh, clearly you see them as making a difference and that there is a clear difference between the two. But uh, what do you make yeah. then of the criticisms from the left which say, no, the fact that they are actively supporting the war, spending trillions of public money while 40 million go hungry. I know it's been said that you can't find a bridge. And I know you write about infrastructure and the need for more bridges. You can't find a bridge in the United States without someone sleeping under it. Uh, none of these progressive caucus people tried to 
put Medicare and some kind of healthcare system into the massive spending bills that have been passed, the huge jumble of uh, spending bills, um, or made it as a, uh, in terms of a, made it a veto uh, position. Um, what is the yeah, difference? I, 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 yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know of anybody who would claim that the progressive element of the Democratic Party is actively supporting any of this stuff. People like Roe and people like AOC will, you know, vote in favor of legislation that there are sort of massive majorities, uh, alas, uh, in the Congress pushing. But what you, if you actually follow AOC in her media appearances or Instagram posts or whatever, or if you follow Ro Khanna, they're all talking about Green New Deal uh, transformation. They're all talking about restoration of American productive capacity, restoration of middle-class building jobs, restoration of um, or bringing about of free health care and free higher education, as well as free uh, uh, entry level education to all Americans. That's what they're actively pushing and actively supporting. Uh, and anytime they happen to join other Democrats to vote in favor of some other piece of legislation that people like you or I might be less inclined to support, they're doing that largely uh, by way of sort of going along to get along in order to avoid having to fight over that stuff. Yeah, but I, I understand they retracted the letter, Ro Connor and AOC, uh, that they tried to call for negotiations. Uh, AOC from clips on YouTube can't walk around without being shouted, heckled at, saying that you're going to start World War III. What is the role? And you've been around, you know, you worked at the IMF, uh, you've, as well as being a scholar. What's it like, uh, the role of lobbying by big companies to destroy and um, attack in effect, your scholarly work. Uh, we know that, as I said, Tom Perez in 2018 permitted fossil fuel lobbying to Democrats. Uh, is, it, is the problem here that so many of the initiatives you want to happen, they, won't, they aren't gonna happen because your initiatives are aimed at making the United States more equitable. And obviously those who are very rich and who are lobbying clearly don't want to give away their money. Well, that's, of course, the struggle, right? I mean, yes, the uh, the efforts of the lobbyists, the efforts of the various sectional interests that uh, pay and are higher on and then pay the lobbyists are, of course, massive. And they, of course, as you know, own most of the mainstream media here in the U.S. as well. So they tend to, you know, not only to lobby directly various members of Congress, but they also shape the message and shape the or determine the framing um, of the public discourse um, as conducted over most of the main sort of social media sites and most of the main media sites. And that's, of course, the fight, right? And this is nothing new and this is not um, surprising, right? Um, uh, Karl Marx wrote, you know, almost two centuries ago at this point uh, about how that's how it works, right? The, the particular class interests tend to purchase uh, and dominate uh, most of the sort of institutions of the culture, uh, as well as most of the institutions of the polity and tend to make uh, the job of those who are trying to, you know, fight for some kind of change all the more difficult. Uh, but be that as it may, we keep, uh, you know, we persist and we every now and then have significant victories. Um, I think we're probably headed uh, for a, a sort of a polar shift or a, a significant sea change of the sort of New Deal uh, magnitude. Uh, we're not there yet, but I think we're getting there. Uh, and certainly the sorts of calamities that are being brought on by the right-wingers uh, are making it our job a lot easier, frankly, because it's a lot easier to um, appeal uh, to folk when all you have to do is sort of point to what's happening around them uh, to make your case, which is what we do.
Well, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, who's championing peace negotiations rather than war. I don't know, when you mention the media, how many television sets you get through. I don't know whether you destroy them then. Uh, the debt ceiling is uh, the issue. Congress people then reflected, mirrored by arguable stenographer, uh, mainstream, so-called mainstream media over there that is owned by six companies. Just explain to us why it's all nonsense in the main what we're hearing about the debt ceiling. Yeah, the debt ceiling is nonsense uh, for a very straightforward reason. It's rooted in an old enactment of Congress 19, in, that was passed in 1917, the Liberty Bond Act. That particular act was passed at a time when the president was the only government official who actually formulated a budget. Congress essentially conferred a great deal of budgetary discretion on the president in those days. And so the debt ceiling that was put into that Liberty Bond Act, um, which of course was enacted during a time that the US was spending a great deal more than it had previously done in preparation for the World War I uh, mobilization, was a way for Congress to sort of remind the president that it had some kind of oversight role. All of that changed fundamentally almost 50 years ago in 1974, when Congress passed a new enactment, which essentially you know, totally changed the budgetary or the budget making regime here in the US. Ever since 1974, Congress itself has formulated the budget. And that budget is then a legal enactment. Every year that it's passed, it's a legal enactment. And it includes not only all the expenditures of the federal government, but all the revenue raising and all the methods of revenue raising, including taxation and bond issuance, i.e. debt undertaking. Um, and so, in effect, the budget is its own debt ceiling. Wait, the so all these its... journalists are stupid, then? I'm not even talking I about the Congress yeah. people. Yeah, either, either they're stupid or they're willfully ignoring this because they enjoy the theater. It's hard to know why they're doing this. I can see why the politicians do it. They seem to enjoy the circus, right? Uh, and they like to grandstand, and this gives them a great opportunity to grandstand on both sides, right? But um, I don't understand why journalists don't point this out because it's fairly straightforward. It's not particularly arcane or recondite or difficult to understand, right? It's very straightforward. The 1974 law supersedes the 1917 law, and in consequence, the budget is its own debt ceiling. There well, I think that's no clear. I think you, you made that point very, very clearly. Do you find yourself triangulating on the Green New Deal with these people on, on the Hill that, again, you, you advise <laughs> uh, eminent uh, progressives, as they're known by some, sellouts by others, uh, do you get triangulate between greenwash quite a bit? We had no less than an advisor to now King Charles uh, III on uh, going underground. People can look up the interview on Rumble. He was horrified. He told us that it was a, it, the whole thing. The big corporations are basically just lying. And uh, presumably King Charles knows, but he's been told in Britain that he can't ever talk about it. Uh, is that why you'll hear that sometimes something that you say is accepted and then you realize that you've written it in a vague enough way that those who are powerful in those corporate lobbies actually think what you're saying is something different and can make money out of it. I haven't experienced that yet. Afshin, if it's happening, I'm not aware of it. And uh, but I would like to be made aware of it if it is indeed happening. But um, you know, happily thus far, I haven't been made aware of any such thing. I'm not. not I don't know of any such thing. It might be partly because my role is fairly limited, right? Um, essentially, what I'll do is provide advice on certain policy matters to certain progressive Congress members if they want, if they ask me or if they want to know. Um, and then I'll just sort of focus on that. And I focus on the merits of the thing and 
only to a very minimal degree on the politics. Like if, uh, if a choice of word looks less likely to raise red flags in the eyes of some Republican Congress members, I might choose a different word. But essentially, I just sort of work on the merits of these things and don't pay that much attention to the, the public discussion about them or how various other politicians might be using them. I know that I've seen myself, you know, sort of caricatured a fair bit by right-wing uh, media. Um, and that usually just is more amusing than anything else. Well, uh, I should just finish on cryptocurrency because you, we started on sanctions and uh, you've written that uh, you're not that uh, enamored by, by it all. But actually, crypto arguably, be, I mean, Dubai is uh, one of the centers of crypto, has been an amazing method for companies and individuals to get around these uh, U.S. sanctions and to allow free trade to occur across the global south. You, you think uh, crypto is on the way out. You're not... You don't think it has a future? I think crypto has a future within very small circles, but crypto is not going to become a major form of currency. And I think it's going to go the way of the old wildcat banknotes that used to be the primary form of paper currency here in the U.S. in the 19th century. And what happened was, of course, every bank issued its own paper currency. All the people who spent paper currency had to use all these different paper currencies, some of which were discounted a great deal uh, relative to face value, others of which were discounted less. They constantly fluctuated wildly in value and so forth. There were just lots of them in the same way that there are lots of cryptos. But as soon as the U.S. issued its own paper dollar, known as the greenback during the Civil War, all of that stuff sort of went by the wayside for the most part. And the only people who retained or kept using those currencies were relatively small circles. I think when the Fed begins issuing a digital dollar, um, maybe it'll adopt a plan that I've put before it over the last five years, maybe it won't, but whatever it does, once it does that, I think wildcat crypto will go the way of the wildcat banknote. But what will the um, point be if, what will the point be if third party sanctions Caesar-type sanctions, as applied to Syria, say, are applied across the global south as uh, Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia, and most of Eurasia, does business with countries that Washington sanctions, and has does it, and uh, obviously incurs the wrath of the uh, U.S. sanctions acts and just says, well, we'll trade in something else. Well, then we're then we're back to where we were before, right? That's back to the question of whether the dollar will retain its dominance. I think the dollar will retain its dominance precisely for as long as other countries depend on U.S. citizens buying their products uh, for their growth models. But as soon as they become less dependent on American consumer markets for their growth, at that point, the dollar ceases to be a global currency and goes back to being a, a national currency, which is what it should have been all along, and which is what it was, right, before the 1940s. Professor Robert Hoggett, thank you. Great, thanks so much, Ashwin. Great to be with you. That's it for the show. We'll be back next Saturday with another brand new episode. But until then, you can still keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. But you can always head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you very soon.